Okay, testing, testing. One, two, three. One, two, three, four, five. Heady yeah. copy. Yeah. yeah, that's looking good. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 50 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. Maybe you recognised his voice already in a little snippet before the music. My guest today is a legend in the world of bush living and is an Australian icon. He is none other than Les Hiddens, the bush tucker man. Les's work has been impactful and long-lived. He has not only made a serious contribution to the wider understanding of native Australian bush foods, he has inspired those of us who've watched his TV shows to live more adventurous lives wherever we're based. His bush tucker work was centred on survival foods available in the northern half of Australia and he also had a fascination with some of Australia's early explorers. The Bush Tucker Man TV shows blended his bush food findings, portraits of the areas in which the food resources are available, the Aboriginal people who have traditionally made use of them, and stories of some of those who previously explored these areas. His enthusiasm for the subject matter was infectious and his presentation style only widens the appeal of these classic TV series. Les was born in Queensland in the north of Australia and after joining the Australian Army he had two deployments in Vietnam in 1966 and 1968, the first as a forward scout in the infantry and the second in intelligence. After this, his interest turned more and more to survival and bush foods. In 1980, he was awarded a Defence Fellowship to research survival in Northern Australia. Ultimately, he was the principal author of the Australian Army's Military Survival Manual, published in 1987, and Les's research into bush foods led to the TV series The Bush Tucker Man, three series of which aired between 1988 and 1996. Les is also an author and he's written books to accompany the TV series as well as his now quite highly sought after out of print Bush Tucker Field Guide. And one of my favourite books of Les's actually is Explore Wild Australia, a fantastic guide to five regions of Northern Australia, combining route guides, maps, historical and cultural information, as well as bush tucker information. Les has also written four books for children. Les retired from the Australian Regular Army in 1989 with the rank of Major. In addition to his TV work and writing, he continued to work with the Australian Army Reserve until 2001, working with Indigenous Australian communities in Northern Australia. The first time I met Les was in 2009, and it was a pleasure to meet with Les again and record this podcast. He's still actively researching and sharing his information, and we get into this in the episode. Like Les's 4x4 journeys, we cover a fair bit of ground in the discussion you're about to hear. So please sit back and enjoy this podcast with Major Les Hiddens, the Bush Tucker Man. Well, I'm very honoured to be sitting here with the legendary Les Hiddens. Welcome, Les. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. It's lovely to have you on, on the podcast. Uh, you're very welcome, mate. Thank you for taking the time and you know, I'm sure the listeners will 
we'll appreciate it and we've we've got a bunch of questions um many from myself we've got listener questions as well um really would like to to dive into various areas of of your work yeah let's, let's do it let's do it excellent good in my work your name comes up a lot and it seems that you've been an inspiration to a lot of people not just in terms of australians but also in terms of people around the world being enthused particularly by your tv work to go out and explore nature go out and explore the the bush and the the forests and the wilderness that they've got access to. i think we were probably the first cab off the rink yes Well, I mean, it's been, I mean, it was a seminal series. You know, you can see echoes of the way that you did things yep. on Bush Tucker Man in subsequent shows around the world, not just in Australian shows, sure, but in sure. natural history shows, in, you know, more ethnographical shows. I mean, it, it, it kind of carries on. Yeah. Um, so you've had a big influence both in terms of professional television, yep, film sure. work, but also individuals like myself and other people that your work was inspirational the the enthusiasm that comes across well so, as, a, as a television series you yeah know, it it had many layers of real expertise in it be it the cinematography or the sound or the the uh, the musical track and all the rest of it and rory o'donoghue and all that mm-hmm. a lot of people contributed uh, another layer and another layer and mm-hmm. another layer of of expertise and that's why it's a, a standout series yeah yeah i mean i noticed that even with the music that it's really tailored to Exactly. The show. And there's one sequence you can see there in one of them. I'm, I'm driving along and Rory O'Donoghue, who recently died actually, oh. um, he had the beat of the music going to the beat of the windscreen wipers on the vehicle, <laughs> on the Land Rover, you know. And yeah. uh, he, he finessed it to that degree. Yeah. So is that, that sort of attention to detail people don't necessarily pick on consciously when they're watching it maybe the first time but it, it, it's what brings it all together is something yep. that sets it apart from other less professional yeah, productions yeah yeah, yeah yeah and it still i mean it still stands up i've you know in preparation for this conversation i've re-watched some of the first series again recently right. and yeah i mean it still stands up you know in terms of you yeah. know quality yeah, it and, doesn't and, date does no it? it doesn't no yeah. no yeah. not at all so one of the things i wanted to ask you then that enthusiasm that you you clearly had and that came through on those shows was that something that you needed to develop because not everyone's great in front of a camera you know some people really struggle to to kind of get mm. to get their personality or get their enthusiasm across but you seem to naturally get it yeah, across. yeah I, I think if you really know and enjoy your subject mm-hmm. that's half the battle you yeah. know and um, you can you can uh, you don't have to push yourself it automatically bubbles through, mm. you know? mm-hmm. and and uh, and no one can ask you a question that'll uh, confound you or anything like that because you know your topic, you know your subject. You know? Yes, 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 absolutely. So, so, diving into the work, really, Les, I heard you say in another interview that the initial report that you submitted to to the to the military was done within about a year of you That's getting right. the, yeah. the the army scholarship. So. From, from my perspective, I'm just thinking about that in terms of learning about trees and plants, learning their uses, and also the, the distances you might have had to travel. How the hell did you do that in a year? I mean, because well, I've, 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 I haven't seen the actual report, but I've seen, I've seen a picture of it, and it's quite a thick 
Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a book. Yeah. So you, you basically researched and wrote a book on unknown materials in within a year. The, in a year. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. did you do that? Um, you get up very early in the morning. You know? <laughs> and and I remember starting that year on the 1st of January, mm-hmm. when most people are having a holiday, mm-hmm. uh, I was piling into a, a Land Rover for the first time and heading over the... Uh, Queensland Northern Territory border into the uh, Northern Territory to do the research on Central Australia. Mm-hmm. Now, don't forget, you've got to go back and back and back because the seasons change. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I, I didn't capture everything in that year, mm. but I captured a really big representation in that year, be it the arid zone or be it the tropical woodland or be it the rainforest or the coastal or the, um, the yeah the, the, the wetlands and that sort of thing. I got a really good smattering. Mm. And... Uh, <laughs> That'll be the clock. Yes, <laughs> uh, and 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 I had it up and and printed it up and and published uh, by the uh, by Christmas that year. Mm. So uh, and then it was headed off to Canberra and that sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a, a very hard slog and a hard year. Yeah, I can mm. imagine. I can imagine. I've heard you say before that you got interested as a hobby before you applied for that. So were you? Were you building on some work that you'd, you'd done already, or was it I, really... I hadn't published anything before that. Mm-hmm. I had photographs, of yeah. photographic coverage, mm-hmm. uh, but I hadn't written anything up. I've done some field notes, I think, that mm-hmm. was about it, but I hadn't done anything like this. You right, know? right. Mm. And did you have any training in botany or ethnobotany or anything All before you... All my training came from the... I'm a graduate of the School of Hard Knocks. Yes. Yeah, and uh, that's where all my training came from. Initially, I'd go out in the bush and I'd catalogue something and photograph it and then I'd take a sample back to the, the university in Townsville, James Cook, mm-hmm. and I'd go to the botany department and say, what have I got here? Right. And gradually, I, I, I came to grips with all that sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they actually... Not so long ago, they gave me an honorary doctor of science. I for, saw that. For, yeah. Congratulations for, uh, for the work that I'd done in that direction. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, did you build a, a good relationship with particular people in in the botany department there? Yeah, uh, Betsy Jake. She was professor of botany there, etc. And Betsy used to. Uh, she was great because she'd invite me around to, uh, around to dinner at her place, and she'd have wild grapes on the table you know <laughs> and she'd say she used to categorize the, the grapes because they burn the back of your throat the australian wild grape right they taste nice initially but then a little burning sensation and some are worse than others right and she'd have one plate on the table and she said now these are a two beer grape and this <laughs> lot here they're a three beer grape you know <laughs> so you could have three beers after you wrote right. this lot right. Right. so yeah. uh yeah, so I built up quite a rapport there. Yeah, good. Yeah, so th- th- it sounds like a good collaborator to have. Yeah, have yeah. there. So just just in terms of how you went about collating, I mean, because you covered big areas. How did you go about? Did did you did you come up with a methodology for being efficient? Because I'm just just from my perspective, I'm I'm trying to get my still trying to get my head around. You know, even just going to one area, say in Europe, and trying to study the mm. trees and the plants that are there, and finding out what they're useful for and which ones are edible is a big job. And you covered different, you know, ecotones basically, completely different yep. types of terrain, and doing that in a short period of time. Uh, so I've got a two-phase question. Really, do you think it was an advantage that you weren't approaching it maybe from a traditional academic perspective, and do you? Did you come up with your own kind of efficient methodologies for cataloguing, making notes? Mm. Yeah, I think it probably 
is an advantage not to uh, be boxed in by academia, mm. and uh, and I certainly wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, the approach I had was to, at a particular time of the year, visit as many communities, Aboriginal communities as I could, in as many different environments, because right. down in the central part of Australia, around Alice Springs and that sort of thing, Santa Teresa and those areas, Yundamu, Hooker Creek, Wayville, then I'd go up to the top end, which is an entirely different environment, but at the same time of year, the same month, mm-hmm. and I'd uh, go to places in the top end of Arnhem Land, Ramangiting and Millingimby and Nullumboy and Nookrum, Numbawar, all those places, and uh, catalogue up there for the same time that I'd been cataloguing down the centre. Mm. So that captured that month in two extreme environments. Right. Then I'd come back via the Gulf of Carpentaria, uh, which is midway between the two environments, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, around the... Uh, uh, Roper Bar and uh, Nooka, Numbawa and uh, Dumaji, mm-hmm. uh, Town, Normanton, that sort of thing, and capture it all again there on the way home to Townsville. Right. And and, and you would sort of repeat that cycle? Uh, next year, I'd yeah. uh, next, not next year, but next trip, yeah. I'd go and uh, visit the Kimberleys right. as well and add that on, uh-huh. uh, And uh, depending on how tired I was. Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. they're big drives, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, I was driving then in a... Uh, a ragtop Land Rover yeah. with no no doors and windows on it, you know. <laughs> so at the end of each day, I was pretty filthy. And, yeah. uh, so it was, you know, make camp, put up a shower block, have a shower. Always had a hot shower at the end of every day. Mm-hmm. And um, then start to think about something to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there were big, long days in the heart, you know, hard days, you know. Yeah. And the worst thing was you'd be in the swag at night beside your vehicle and you'd hear the vehicle creaking. And that meant one thing, you've got a flat tyre. And it's creaking and it's slowly going down. down, Right, and the first thing I've got to do when I get out of bed tomorrow (laughs) is change the bloody (laughs) tyre. Well, I saw on one of the episodes that you were... It was one of the one of the later episodes, one of the stories of survival where you were were changing a tyre, but you were talking about how hard those guys had, you know, when they were were travelling with the six-wheel drive trucks out into... The bush near Alice Springs, that the amount of punctures that they had. Oh yeah, and they used to stuff the stuff the wheel with spinifex and all that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I never got to that stage, but um, <laughs> I've, I've been at a stage where I've had my fingers crossed because I'd used up all my spare tyres. You know. and, and just that, how many would you take with you? Oh, typically? Two, two, two. Two. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, but also, also there were two on the uh, the trailer, trailer, and they could be cannibalised as well. Right. So there was a spare on the back of the trailer, a spare on the back of the Land Rover, plus two on the axle of the trailer, which were compatible. Right. Okay. So mm. there was a reasonable amount of redundancy in the yeah, in the system. Yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. could always dump the trailer. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were quite a few questions. I, I will I will jump through the uh, the listener questions towards the end if we've not kind of come out with them in the conversation. But quite a few people asked about the vehicles. One of the questions was, do, do you still have them? Um, I guess you don't. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I've actually moved on from Land Rover because yeah. I didn't leave Land Rover. Land Rover left me. They've right. changed their direction in yes, life, and they have. Uh, yeah. it's not like it used to be. No, mm. no, no, no. And were they were they actually reliable? Did they did they do the job for you? Um, they did the job. Yeah. Reliability. Well, that's one of the reasons I moved on in the end. You know. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, they did the job. Yeah. Uh, particularly the Australian diesel version that they bought out, mm. uh, which was the 110 Parenti vehicle. Mm-hmm. That was exceptional. That right. was really good because it, uh, 
first of all, it had a Japanese diesel engine in it. Right. That helped. Mm-hmm. And uh, the configuration that the Australian Army put on it, which is the one you see in the, the very first series on uh, on the television. Which is the one that people have a lot of love for because they kind of associate you yes, with that vehicle. That's yeah. right. Yeah. With a swinging billy can in the in the back of it yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and the configuration with the jerry cans out the back and that sort of thing, uh, a power takeoff winch on the front. And, of course, um, uh, by then I'd, I'd managed to get a, a HF radio as well, mm-hmm. which was not a bad thing to have when you're travelling by yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And on travelling by yourself, in the, in the Bush Tucker Man series, obviously you had a, had a crew with you that were filming, but you were generally portrayed as travelling on your own, doing your work on your own. Yep. What was it that you liked about that in particular, about travelling? I mean, you, you refer to it in the shows, but, I mean, looking back on it now, I mean, what was special about that time in terms of... Oh, I think, um, you know, being able to, to, to go your own way at your own pace and um, uh, without looking at someone else's behaviour and, uh, and their attitude and that sort of thing, particularly mm-hmm. when you're working with Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. That's something you've got to watch all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't have to look at... Some, I've just got to look at myself and make sure my own situation is correct. You mm-hmm. So you can, you can just focus, basically. Is, yeah, 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 yeah. Without having to police someone else. You absolutely, know. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And those interactions that you had with Indigenous uh, communities... Was that something that you really had to, to work at to foster the trust, or did it again? Yes, yeah. Uh, what I'd do, the way I worked that, and I'd still do exactly the same today, is that I'd go to the community, and don't forget, the, the information I want was held by the women, because right. it's a hunter-gatherer society, and the women did the gathering. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know that kangaroos gallop across the countryside, and if you wanted to, you could shoot one and eat one. Mm-hmm. That's not the information I was chasing. Mm-hmm. I was chasing the information on the gathered food, and that was the, the women who did that. Mm-hmm. And what I'd do in each community, I'd say, hey, listen, I'm going to come back in about three months, and uh, I want to know about the stationary bush food, bush mm-hmm. tucker, mm-hmm. and we'll go out and do day trips, you know. So I'd make a camp probably 10, 20 kilometres away from the community, out in the bush. Mm-hmm. Then in the morning, very early, I'd get to the community by about 8 o'clock and um, having driven the 20 kilometres mm-hmm. and, and I'd load up the, the vehicle with, with some of the women and we'd go out for the day and, and uh, collect bush tucker and I'd photograph it and then come back and drop them back that night and I'd give them uh, uh, army ration packs and things as a, a thanks very much for helping me. You know? Right. Mm. And they so were was tucker for tucker. Tucker for tucker, yeah. yeah. And they were happy to accept that. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Seems like a good trade. Mm. Seems like a good trade. And I noticed as well that you mentioned, um, I think I was watching, uh, was it the Port Keats wet episode? Yeah, and you wet season. Yeah, wet, and you yeah. built that camp out there with a, t- yeah. with a tarp and you were talking about how there was no way you could live off bush tucker when you were doing the work, that you had to live off rations, but then supplement with That's right. the odd. And the aim of the game was never to have the army, for instance, or the in particular special forces like the SAS, mm. uh, living off bush tucker. Mm. The aim of the game was to allow them, the knowledge base, to perhaps extend the 24-hour ration pack to 72 hours mm-hmm. by supplementing. Right. And uh, if you don't have the knowledge, you can't supplement. No. So the idea was to gather the knowledge together. Mm-hmm. And it was particularly aimed at that sort of operation. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, again, I recall you telling a story where you 
when you were in Vietnam that you had a, a time when you, you held off the resupply for a number of days and that made you think about, well, what, what could I eat? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I forget how many days it was, but I, I thought it was a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the, it was a number of days because the minute that you had a helicopter come in and dump rations, everyone knows where you are. Of course. And uh, we didn't want that to happen. We did find a, a, a means of skirting around that problem and that was to have the choppers fly over at treetop level and kick it out of the door and keep flying. Right. You know, not land. Yes. And then have them land five kilometres away or ten kilometres away sort of thing yeah. in, a, in a false landing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was mm, a pretty rugged way to do it, you know. Yeah. Everything got bashed up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you have to, have to find it all. Yeah, 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 yeah. you got to find yeah, it. Yeah. And you don't find all of it anyway, you no, know. No, no. So... I guess that that's interesting because a lot of people think about the um, the bush took of food just from a well if a plane's crashed or somebody's stranded mm. and they've got no mm. food, but that I guess in some ways is is a lot more operationally useful for a lot of people, isn't it? If they're operating out for a long period of time and they, they can supplement that way, but it's not the first thing that most people think of in no, terms of no. survival, is it? They no, think well of, they don't think from a military perspective, mm, I guess you know, mm-hmm. and and. That is coming back into focus a little bit here in Australia now again because, of, you know, the South Pacific and the Chinese and, and um, Northern Australia mm. and our troops are now coming back from the Middle East, yes. as I think the British troops are too. Yeah. And uh, uh, we're now focusing on our Northern coastline mm-hmm. uh, with people like North Force in Darwin and 51 RQR in Cairns and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So we'll see... A, a lift up in focus in that direction, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, have you seen a sort of drop off then in focus? You know, you did a lot of work in the eighties. Yeah. Then we've kind of got involved in sort yeah. of expeditionary warfare in the Middle East. And, That's right. Yeah. And they t- and and for Australia also, they got involved in East Timor. Right. And they totally lost focus on the uh, the stuff that I'd done. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did have a school operating, then they closed that down. Right. And the usual thing, they've got to reinvent the wheel now. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And is that information still reposited somewhere in the military, in the Australian military? I think they've got trouble finding all the colour slides that I left them. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> because the, the people that used to uh, harbour those slides uh, were the Army Survey Corps, and they got disbanded and handed over the responsibility to engineers, I think it was. Right. And they don't print the maps anymore, all that sort of thing. Mm. And uh, I think the, the colour slides that were left behind have have gone down the gurgler as well mm-hmm. and that's why with the website that i've been putting together i've gone to digital photography yeah and uh, we've constructed the website so that it, it's uh, you you can't lose the color slides there no yeah. no no well so if if people don't know about your website they should do and we should mention it so um, yeah it's it's pretty simple uh, address mm-hmm. it's one word bushtuckerman.com.au yeah Bushtuckerman, all one word. Yeah, and there's a lot of information on there already. I think we've got 180 species listed there mm-hmm. so far. And, uh, you know, Sandy and I have been doing that for the last couple of years. Yeah, because um, you've been re-photographing a yes, lot of the species. Yes, yeah. re- redoing the photographs yeah. and rebuilding the whole database. But the joy about doing it on a website, as you've probably found out, is when you get into it, uh, uh, not only have you got the photographs, and you've got more photographs than what we can put in a book. Yes. And we can put video in there, but mm-hmm. we also uh, do voiceover in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's a lot more information on a page in a website than the, what there is in a page in a book. Yes, and and you can update it as well as you as you 
if, if you want to add extra information or yeah, the yeah things come to light. We'll, yeah. we'll add it. I think we've probably got enough species in there. Otherwise, we're starting to look at, at too fine a stuff. You know, right. there are a few species I've not put in there because they're too close to being the, uh, the poisonous cousin brother. Right. Uh, so I don't want to have people trip up on that. Okay. So rather than put it in and run that risk, I, mm. I didn't put them in. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So ones that look close, that are very similar to very ones. Very similar. Yeah. 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 Except the only way, I'm thinking of one of the Santalums in Central Australia, the only way you can tell the difference with one and the other is does a grain of stand stick to the outer skin? Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. If it does, uh, uh, I think you've got the good one or the bad one. I forget now. <laughs> you know? uh, but if it comes down to that sort of finer point, yeah. Uh, I think we can do without it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And particularly, if, you know, whether people, you know, if people are just foraging for sort of leisure, they probably don't need that. No, and, if, no. and if they're, they're hypoglycemic and tired and, yeah. you know, yeah. it's probably not the best decision to be trying to make either, is yeah. it? So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. So have you, how to phrase it, sort of rediscovered that sort of joy of going out and photographing? Or have you always been, have you continued to do it the whole time? I, I, I think I've probably pretty much continued to do it all mm-hmm. the time. I'm a, a great collector of photographs, as you can see in the Instagram site. Yes. You know, there's a lot of photographs in there, um, and some of them are pretty interesting stuff, you know. Yes. Fly, uh, because I, I was lucky enough when I came back from the Vietnam War, the second tour of Vietnam that I did, I wasn't in um, walking around with a pack on my back. I was in the intelligence section. And then the Army realised their mistake. <laughs> and uh, they sent me to the officer's cadet school and I got commissioned as a platoon commander. Right. But later on, I core transferred from uh, infantry across to Army aviation. And that allowed me to be flying around on the left-hand seat of a helicopter um, all over Northern Australia, mm-hmm. which taught me a hell of a lot, you know. And... Uh, um, you know, I could see where species were distributed and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing, and it allowed me to do a lot of photographs from the air. Right. And particularly of World War Two stuff. Uh, there's mm-hmm. crashed aircraft and things all mm-hmm. around Northern Australia mm-hmm. from World War Two. Yes. And they're still out there. It's still out there in the bush. And uh, from the chopper, you, you could uh, photograph that sort of thing and mm-hmm. and buffalo and all that crocodiles. The whole mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this going back to the World War Two stuff. I mean, there's some grueling stories of downed airmen in Arnhem Land and other places. I mean, was that some of the inspiration that led you to yeah, want uh, to? Yeah, the other yeah. During World War Two, they had an Australian author called Ian Idrius. Mm-hmm. He wrote a lot of semi-fictional books. Or semi-documentary. Uh, I don't think he let the the truth get in the way of a good story, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they thought, well, oh, he, you know, he knocks around the bush. He'll know about but but he didn't know about bush food. And uh, his his survival manual that he wrote at the time was pretty basic. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no bush food in it or anything like that because he simply didn't know. Uh, apart from obvious things like coconuts or something like that, mm-hmm. but uh, that knowledge was totally lacking so the army didn't have anything it was a clean sheet of paper when i started Mm -hmm. and i've seen it written in a couple of places that you were principal author of the survival manual yeah and i also noticed that in your bush took a field guide which we've we've got a copy here but also on your website you say that that's not a survival manual that they you know it's not a survival guide yeah yeah so in in your mind, what's what's the difference in the way that that information is presented then in something like the Bush Tucker Field Guide as to how you might present it in in a survival manual? Well, the survival manual that I wrote for the Army was basically not covering Bush Tucker so much, you know, mm-hmm. because we had an adjunct 
available to the soldier then. It was called snack maps. Right. You know, and the survival manual covered all the things like the three elements of survival are food, water, and shelter. Mm-hmm. How do you obtain them? What priority do you give in what circumstance? Mm-hmm. That sort of instruction. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, you want to know about food? You, you know, okay, get your Army Topo survey map, turn it over, and there printed on the back is usually a big white bit of paper. Mm-hmm. We've printed all the bush tucker for, for that area. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Army Survey Corps people were printing in those days. Yep. So uh, they were, but that all stopped. You know. That was the snack maps. And so when did they come about? Because I, I know in, again, I think the first series of the Bush Tucker Man, you said that you were intending to put that information on the map. Yeah. So that was clearly in process in the sort of mid to late 80s, was it? That's right. Yeah. And they did, they went through and did that. Mm-hmm. I think we did about um, a couple of hundred map areas. Mm. There's quite a few. Yeah. Uh, all around the, the northern uh, coastal areas, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't think we did anything in Central Australia. Right. But in due course, they would have done that. Mm-hmm. These days, I don't think they're even printing maps. I think it's all electronic, electronic you yeah. know, mm. um, which is great until you get a flat battery. Yes. You know? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm, I'm old school like that as well. Uh, you know, the, the, the pa- I, what I grew up on was sort of paper map and compass. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I feel very, and yeah, yeah, I feel very uncomfortable if I don't have one. Yeah, <laughs> if I'm out somewhere, right. so, yeah. Well, I've just went to get some maps the other day, and they 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 totally stopped printing them. Right. Yeah. Can I'm, you can I'm you still get, get topo maps here print to order? Because a lot of places, like Canada, like I go to Canada a fair bit, and again, there's a vast area there. A lot of their maps are print to order. Oh, right. So if you want them, you've got to order them, and then they'll print them out, and you can still get the paper. Right. Ones. right. Yeah, well, yeah. that's probably the way they'll end up going. Mm-hmm. You know. I've, I've, I've got several hundred maps here yeah. covering Northern Australia, yeah. which I'm not getting rid of. You know? No. <laughs> no, they're probably worth yeah. their weight in gold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of the, the snack maps, then, jumping to that, how did you determine what species would go on there? Because, I mean, there's a fair amount of space on the back of a topo map, mm. but it's still like any printed media, it's a, it's a limited space. Mm. Well, um, how did you choose? Was it, was it just the most common foods? Was it the most valuable foods calorifically? Or did you have some uh, of the matrix for deciding? Uh, two, two things. Yeah. Firstly, soldiers are renowned for cutting maps up. Right. If they've got a map that's um, you know, covering 50 square kilometres, they're only going to be walking around initially in a 10 square kilometre patch right. so they only take that part of the map mm-hmm. and, and throw the rest away so what I made was species on the back of the map that were relevant to what was on the immediate opposite side of the map right. so that when they cut them up if it was a coastal area they had coastal species on the part that they took with them right. Right. Mm-hmm. and then I made it the, the most easily identifiable mm. you know and uh, coastal would have oysters, it'd have um, uh, mud mussels, it'd have mangrove worm, it'd have coconuts, and all the coastal species type mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And as we moved inland, if it was a rainforest inland from the coast, as it is here in North Queensland, around Cairns here, then we'd have the rainforest species starting to appear as well. Mm-hmm. You know, But it was the most easily identifiable. Right, mm. right. That was the primary yeah. filter yeah. for putting them on yep. there. Right, yep. okay, that makes mm. sense. Um, you've already alluded to a little bit, but when I look at that work, one of the things that boggles my mind the most is how you came about the distribution maps. How did you survey which species occurred where? Oh. Yeah. Now, that was funny because... Yeah. Uh, all the herbariums in Australia are run 
according to state government, their state government uh, herbariums. Mm. And back then, one herbarium in, in one state wouldn't talk to another herbarium in another state. Mm-hmm. So I used to send them maps of Australia, each one individually, and say, here, this species here, uh, Passiflora phaeototide or whatever it was, I'd give it the Latin name, mm-hmm. proper flash name, yep. and uh, <laughs> send that out to them and say, hey, put a cross on the map here where you've got this growing. And they'd come back with all their little crosses and I'd just collate all the crosses onto one map. Right. Now, uh, and then I'd sit down and draw the map that's relevant to the distribution there. Mm-hmm. These days you don't have to do it because now with the internet they're actually talking to each other right. and there's a thing called the virtual Australian Virtual Herbarium mm-hmm. and that's got a, a, an instant collation of all the information for each species. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier now no. to find that distribution yeah. than what it was back then because of course there was no internet back then. No, no. So no. That's, that's why I was like <coughs> thinking about that report thinking about the distribution maps, thinking about the distribution maps you've got in the field guide, how you'd have got the distributions for the snack maps. And I was like, how the hell, how yeah. the hell did he do that? So, yeah, that's how it was done. Right, yeah. 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 But a bit of an uphill battle. But because I was coming from an army perspective, I was no professional threat to them. No, of right? course, yeah. And um, so that they quite easily, uh, uh, quite, quite happily, uh, handed over the information. Mm-hmm. You know? So they'd done the surveys, they had the information, and you just... Yeah, piece the jigsaw puzzle together that's it. basically that's right. it that's exactly what happened yeah fantastic yeah. 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 yeah well again I guess coming another advantage of not coming from that kind of academic that's right if it was an academic they wouldn't yeah. have told me yeah you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, fascinating fascinating they the, the snack maps were they intended for use by people who'd had no training in identifying those plants or were they more meant to be more of an aid memoir in terms of, like, they'd had some basic survival training? No, they were no. meant for someone who, who had no training, no mm-hmm. encounter with a, a species ever before. Mm-hmm. You know, we gave a, a description on the leaf foliage structure and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a legend down the bottom of each map showing you what, when we say it's, it's, it's a trifoliate, what's a trifoliate? Yeah. Well, here it is, here's mm-hmm. a drawing of one, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So we gave them all that information on the back of the map. Mm-hmm. So they could use that to identify the various species, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I have a few of them back home, some of the snack maps. I oh, have, have you? Two, two or three of them, yeah, a friend yeah, of mine. It's probably two or three home. more than I've got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've really not got many? No, no, no. I've got a couple, but right. that's it, yeah. Okay, that's a shame. Well, I guess you've got the source material, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, so I've got the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I have now that we've redone it, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you got the help from the the herbariums that way. You were working with Townsville, mm. um, the botany department there. In terms of the field work, was it was it just you ultimately? Because you, know, you did that first year, but subsequent to that, yep. did the work continue? Yeah. What happened was at the end of that uh, defence fellowship year, mm-hmm. uh, we had a fellow called Brigadier Mike Jeffries, and uh, he was uh, in charge of uh, DSAF, Directorate Special Action Forces, which mm-hmm. was the SAS and the commandos mm-hmm. and the counter-terrorist strike force at the time. And he whistled me up and put me in, in his directorate in Canberra, mm-hmm. uh, where I was for the next two years, something like that. Right. And then they let me cut loose and go and finish the field research and uh, write up the, uh, the uh, survival manual and to contribute that field research to the snack maps. Right. Mike Jeffries ended up being uh, Governor General of Australia. Right. Right. So, and he's still kicking. He's down there in Canberra somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But he was the mentor for getting this up and running. Right. Mm. Right. So you've, he he helped you. Yeah. Yeah. Get that all. Yeah. 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 And then 
you know, five years later, television came along. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. And how did that? How did that occur? How did that sort of jump into t- television? You may have talked about that before, but I actually don't know the answer. How no. did you? It was an accident. It wasn't right. meant to happen. Yeah. The defence department used to have a PR firm or a PR segment, mm. and defence PR it was called, and they wanted to do a half-hour program or one-hour program to go on television. And they came up to Townsville and they were going to do the RAF Survival School. And when they were uh, doing the research on that, they found that there, over the road, the army had a bloke who was running around the bush collecting all this information. Right. So they came over to my office to see what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I'm doing this and that and all the rest of it. And um, and they changed their idea. They, they thought, no, we won't do the RAF Survival School. We'll do this bloke running around the bush. Mm-hmm. So they did that and... They did a one-hour docker and they put it together and they turned around and they said to me in the end, oh, what are we going to call this? And I said, I don't care, it's your docker, nothing to do with me. You know, even though I've been working with them for a month or three right, weeks or right. something. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, what do the Aboriginal call you? And I said, oh, probably a lot of things once I leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, either the Berry Man over in Cape York, they call me the Berry Man. Up in Arnhem Land, they call me the Bush Tucker Man. Um, they said, oh, that'll do, Bush Tucker Man. So that's what they did. Right. And they called this one-hour doco the Bush Tucker Man, and they had somebody else narrate it. I didn't narrate it. Right. right? Yeah. They had a, I have seen that a long while ago. It's, yeah. it's kicking around the internet somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It, it's pretty lame in compared with mm. the final series. Yes. They then sold that one-hour doco for money to the ABC television. Right. And ABC television bought it, because they wanted to own it, and they didn't want somebody else to grab it. Mm-hmm. And they warehoused it, put it on the shelf, never to be shown. And then they came back to Army and they said, hey, we like that so much. They didn't tell them they weren't going to show it, but we like that so much, we um, we reckon we can do a whole series. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about that? So apparently Army and the ABC got their heads together and said, yeah, we'll, we'll lend you that bloke and uh, with the funny hat and uh, uh, you can have him for, what, a year? And um, he can, you can do a whole series with him. Then they um, got a helicopters uh, allocated to do the aerial filming and all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Got an all trades and all the rest of it to go with the aircraft and all the fueling and all that sort of thing. That was all lined up. And then they t- turned around to me and said, oh, by the way, your job next year is to make a television series. Right. Up so you that, didn't know about it no, until they got no, it all straight away. Until it was right. all sorted. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that's what happened. So I thought, right. oh, righto, okay, if that's what I've got to do, we'll do it. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. uh-huh. And I'd and just done that one-hour doco with the, uh, six months before, mm-hmm. you know, so I knew what was involved. Yes. And I certainly knew that we had enough material to do that, mm. you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's how that all came about. Right. Mm. And then did you have, did they, did they prep you at all in terms of presentation or was it literally just go out in the bush and film? Uh, they asked me to, uh, where do you want to go and what did you so I had to script it then right you know and so I put together a whole script for each episode mm-hmm. uh, and then I I gathered what I call for a half hour doco I, I had what I call eight G whiz points where right. these eight little high points in the in the doco in mm-hmm. the half hour oh gee whiz you know mm-hmm. and <laughs> it might be about the bush tucker or it might be about history, mm. you know, mm-hmm. or uh, it might be about some geographical feature, mm-hmm. you know, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Something that's really quite unusual. Attention grabbing. Yeah, yeah, it could even be a crashed aeroplane from World War Two, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and then there'd be five or six uh, bush tuckers. Right. And you can't always 
bet that they're going to be in season too. Of course. I knew roughly when they should be, mm-hmm. but uh, and then I had a couple of spare gee whiz points in my back pocket just right. in case they weren't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like the spare tyres on the Like the, the spare, spare tyres, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, backup systems for backup systems, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, I scripted each each of those episodes all the way through all the, the three series, you know. Mm-hmm. 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 So I knew exactly what we were going to be doing. Right, mm-hmm. right. And then it was a case of just going and doing it then. well they, yeah. the producers pretty much in my hands you know right. um, they'd never been to where we were going no. they didn't know where the fuel was and you know where to yeah. camp and all that yeah, sort of yeah, thing so yeah. they were pretty much reliant on what yeah. i was telling them yeah. they had to do. do do you think that that style of tv wouldn't be possible now with the way budgets are and i don't think so mm. you know, i don't think the army would let anyone loose the way they let me loose back then no. nowadays workplace health and safety and political correctness all get in the way of that sort mm, of thing mm-hmm. which is why you end up with what we've got these days mm, trash mm. television yeah mm. yeah lowest common denominator yeah, and cheap yep, and yeah yep. yeah nasty yeah. but you know I, even towards the end i noticed with the production we were just moving from film to uh, video right and what i found that did was made people lazy right um producers mm-hmm. and they'd do five takes of something just in case right i want five takes you know yes, yeah. and uh, with film they didn't do that mm. they had to think out what they were going to uh, point the camera at yes you know pre-plan the shots yeah, yeah 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 and so did did you find the latter more frustrating when they want to take multiple takes of the same thing oh uh, yeah it's it's annoying it's it says you're not trying you know, mm. you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're lazy. You yeah, mm. yeah. But do you find as well that it would maybe sort of cut the flow of, you know, because if you, if you plan the shots and do them and they're in the bag and you move on to the next thing, there's a kind of natural flow to things. But if you keep... Oh, you go downhill straight away, yeah. you know. Yeah. You, know, you lose that enthusiasm that yes. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. If you've got to catch it on, on one take, then yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you put everything into That's it. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. What, what do you think drove... I mean, clearly there was a practical reason for the for the military. What do you think really drove your curiosity for the for the bush tucker? Because clearly there was something deeper than just okay. Well, this is a practical job oh, for yeah, the for yeah. the army. Yeah. I think uh, the search for knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it was all about. You know, and that's what drove people to watch it. Yeah, here in Australia, mm-hmm. because we don't know much about this country. We've only been here a couple of hundred years, yeah, or a little over, mm-hmm. and uh, we're still finding finding. Uh, details about this country that we never knew mm. um you know you go through the kimberley stop your car walk out find a rock stand on top of the rock you're probably very uh, secure in thinking i'm probably the first white man to stand on this rock mm. right mm-hmm. can't do that in england no you know yeah. and uh, but you can here in australia yeah you know and we are still finding out what's the makeup of the country and the environment here and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we're still learning. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, a couple, again, going back to the, the TV shows, a couple of things that you said, one being how, um, how special, you know, I just remember that one where you stood up on that rock and how special that was yep. and how the, the environment just hasn't changed. Yep. Um, and, and the other thing that strikes me as well is how, having read a little bit about the way the Aboriginals viewed the world mm-hmm. and, you know, even down in, in Victoria where those traditions are maybe much less intact, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's still reasonable documentation. There are still attempts to document what, what we know about native foods and, and whatnot. But the way that they saw the seasons, how nuanced their yeah. Yeah. knowledge of 
you know, the changes yep. in plants and trees and animals and the interrelationships between yep. those things. I mean, our sort of Western, Northern European sort mm. of framework for seasons is very crude in comparison to... Well, they had up to, to eight seasons in mm. Arnhem Land, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, you know, not just... Well, we just talk about the wet season, the dry season, mm. almost. Summer, winter, autumn, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. But they had eight seasons and it would be the beginning of the wet or the build-up to the wet, then the wet itself, then the drying out and the runoff. Mm. You know, there's three seasons there, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, whereas we lump it together and call it the wet season, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of thing. Uh, I think they call it, up there in Millingimby, they called it Durathara. I think that was the, right. the eight seasons, I think. Okay. Mm. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. And that... And that all comes from uh, an intense observation of what's going on, doesn't it, in oh, terms yeah, of the, yeah, the land? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but don't uh, don't forget that observation is dying off. Mm. You know, and um, these days I think we'd find it pretty hard to find the informants that I managed to find back in my day. Yeah, because the knowledge is just not there the way it used to be. Yeah. Yeah, there's one character that I remember who took you out to get into the mangroves. Was it Billy? No, uh, Johnny. Johnny. Chula. Johnny Chula. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, characters like him must have been absolutely fascinating yeah. and, and joyous see, to work with. Yeah, uh, you'll see him on the Instagram site, and he's got a he's got a hole through his nose where he puts his rolled up bit of paper or his cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I just I remember him taking you down to the mangrove swamps and getting yeah. the mangrove worms. Yeah, and, well, yeah. I I was flying Tula around an army chopper there one time in the back there, and we came across a World War Two wreck, you know. Right. And Tula was telling us over the radio from the back seat uh, that he was responsible for saving those fellows down there during the war. Right. He said all they had to eat was that machine tucker. He said, machine tucker, Johnny. Yeah, yeah, you know he would. Tin, you know, right, tin, right, tin. Right. all they had to eat was tin food. Tin food yeah, <laughs> machine tucker. Yeah, 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 yeah. makes sense. <laughs> but he's, yeah. No, he's no longer with us either. No, but, mm. no. but I guess characters like him are fewer and further between now. Oh, you don't get them anymore. They're, no. they're, they're pretty, pretty scarce. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. One one thing that I saw, um, <coughs> I think it was in an ABC. It was it was a text on an, on the ABC uh, website. It was sort of an interview with you, but I think it was taken from a video piece they did, where you or maybe your wife mentioned that there are communities now that are following your Instagram account and using them as as teaching points for their for yeah, their students. Yeah. yeah, I gather that's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, well, it's. Um it's it's a turnaround, isn't yeah, it, really? They yeah. taught me now that knowledge is teaching them again. Yes, you know? mm. yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think there is a resurgence of interest in, in the traditional I'd skills? like to think so, but yeah. I'm not that sure. Right, mm. right, mm. yeah. I mean, I, 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 I sense, say, in places like Canada, there is with some of their First Nations that they've, they've kind of lost certain aspects, but now they're trying to strengthen them again. I remember spending... I have some <coughs> friends up on a, on a native reserve in Ontario, and... I went over, he was taking a bunch of school kids out. Some of them yeah. were First Nations kids, some of them were white kids, mm. and they would bust into the reserve, and he was taking them on a on a sort of nature interpretation walk and showing them about some of the bush foods there. And I remember yeah. having a really lovely conversation with one of the slightly older kids who he must have been about 14, 15, and he'd been learning moose tanning from his uncle, moose hide tanning. Mm. And he was trying to learn the Ojibwa language because his mm-hmm. point was 
a lot of the uses of the plants uh, tied up in the names mm, and mm. the traditional names and if they don't keep the traditional language then they lose that sort yeah. of database of yeah. of what they're useful for because that that's how they refer to them yeah, so sure. yeah so it would, that was nice to see you've got some 15 year old kid mm. who's you know really keen on learning the language and learning the uses and yep. you know mm. whereas there seems to be almost a generation where maybe they lost a lot of yeah. those skills and yeah yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, trying to get Aboriginal communities, trying to get the kids to show up to school is a problem. You know? Right. Yeah. And the attendance rates are pretty terrible. Mm. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And but they're not. This, but if they're not going to school, they're not learning these things out on the land either. Then anymore. No. 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 That's a shame. That's a shame. In term in terms of working with the Aboriginal groups that you did work with, and them showing you certain foods clearly clearly there are a range of different habitats and you were traveling quite mm-hmm. widely but <clears throat> presumably there was also some overlap mm. in terms of what one people yep. told you about a particular species mm. and another and presumably there were some differences there you know just either what they used them for or yep. the emphasis they gave yep. them medicine or food or what have you in terms of you collating that information did you just kind of put it all together and say yeah what uh, quite often i would go from one community where I'd been shown a particular bush tucker or something, and I'd be shown the same bush tucker in another community. Mm-hmm. I'd never say, "Oh, look, I already know that." No, that just—that's a silly thing to do. Of course, yeah. and uh, uh, and then quite often they'd say, "Oh, yeah, bush tucker," but also this one's bush medicine too. Mm. And you'd find that they use it; it's got a, uh, an anaesthetic to it that you put on toothache. Right. Uh, you heat up the root and put it on your your, your mm-hmm. tooth. Mm-hmm. Now, the first community didn't tell me that. No. But the second one did. did. Yeah. So I've added that information to that same species. Yes. So you collate and build up on yeah. it. So. And quite often you find something on the east coast of uh, Australia that is used for A, B, and C. But by the time you get to the west coast, you found. D, E, and F are being used for the same species as well. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. That's interesting. Because <coughs> I've, I've noticed that in other parts of the world as well, where mm. things have got quite a large distribution, that yeah. you get some very common uses and yeah. then you get individualized uses. Yeah. 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 And so everything that you put out was all was an accumulation of all yep. of that. Yeah. Right. That's, that's right. Yeah. So even, yeah. even to the extent of bush medicine and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And and with the with the bush medicines, I, I had a fascinating conversation with uh, she. She's basically in the ethnobotany department in one of the U.S. Uh, universities, but she's looking at medicinal uses of yeah. traditional medis- medicinal uses of plants, and a little bit like you with the, the kakadu plum, and we can kind of come to that. They're sort of almost verifying isn't quite the right word, but they're putting a modern scientific. Yeah. understanding of yeah. some of the traditional mm. uses mm. and you know you sometimes think well uh, is this old wives tales that this sure. I remember again mm. you, you saying about something being a really good um, antidote to death adder bites and you weren't about to, to yeah. find out and mm. you know there are some things like that that it's only hearsay isn't it you, it's, yeah. it's difficult mm. to test directly mm. but there are other things as well that you know you, you question is this hearsay is there actually is it is it just a placebo or does it actually work mm. Mm. and now there's more research, it seems, yeah. being done into yeah. the chemical composition of some of these things and how they yeah. work. And I know with with the kakadu plum, for instance, I remember reading that you yep. said that was taken in small amounts, almost like a medicine. Yeah, for coughs and colds and yeah. things like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Because, and, and when you analyse it, you find out why. It's very mm. high in ascorbic acid. Yes, you know? yeah. And uh, uh, that's Terminolia ferdinandiana. Mm-hmm. And 
then I found that most of the terminators are pretty high in uh, in uh, vitamin C as well, right. ascorbic acid. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, yeah. But, uh, there was during the bicentennial year here in Australia, the Northern Territory government put out a book called the Pharmacopoeia. So the Pharmacopoeia just listed the bush tucker. They mm-hmm. didn't analyse them. I think that's a job for some enterprising university down the track. Mm. Mm. There's a good thing to focus on. Yeah. Well, mm. there's a there's a lot of work to be done there. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, not just in Australia, but around the world. I mean, there's yeah. there's only if again talking to Cassandra Quave, her assertion was there's only really globally been a couple of hundred plants that have been fully analysed yeah. mm. that we fully understand chemically. Yeah. yeah. So we've got so much more to learn yeah. about yeah. what's in these plants and what they can do for us. Yeah. And, you know, and even though some of those uses are already there in terms of traditional knowledge. Mm. We're not making use of them in in modern medicine no. at all. Yeah. No, there's too much money to be made in the other direction. Yeah. Mm. But it's also, you know, it's a little bit like the food industry as well. That, You know, I was reading some material the other day about the indigenous food, sort of the growth and in, in interest in indigenous foods here in Australia. And the difficult part of the difficulty in getting those onto, say, the shelves of the supermarkets is that all of the sort of testing and, you know, all of that stuff that needs to be done for a food, mm. you've got to put it through all of these processes yeah, and yeah. registrations and testing. And yeah. there's quite a lot of hurdles yeah. to getting something in front of somebody yeah. as a food stuff or a medicine. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I imagine there would be. Because mm. everything you pick up has got that scientific breakdown on it, you know. The nutritional value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Sugar, sugars and carbohydrates and yeah, all that sort indeed. of thing. Yeah, indeed. Which some of some of your stuff does as well. It's clearly been analysed along the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I used to uh, gather uh, fr- uh, samples and put them in the freezer, you know. Mm-hmm. Then I'd get to a, a, a city like Alice Springs or Darwin or something, and I'd put them in a little foam esky and uh, send them off to Scottsdale where the uh, food science laboratory, defence food science laboratory, would analyse them. Right. And that's where they turned up. They couldn't believe uh, the result they got for the kakadu plum. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I'd sent that from, I think, um, Catherine or something like that. And then I drove down to Alice and I went to sleep in the front of the car because I didn't motel it or anything. You know, I didn't have that sort of money. <laughs> and um, uh, I was asleep in front of the car and next minute there was a knock on the window. This is in front of the Army Reserve Depot there. Mm-hmm. Uh, knock on the window at five or six o'clock in the morning, and there's this uh, Northern Territory policeman saying, "Are you Captain Hiddens?" And I said, "Yeah." And they said, "We've well, got to ring this number urgently." So I rang the number. I didn't have a. We didn't have mobile phones then. No, no. I had to find an electric telephone on the side <laughs> of the road. <laughs> rang them. And it was Scott Starling in Tasmania saying, "Hey, that plum you sent us." We need another sample. <laughs> I said, geez, it's a thousand mile away. <laughs> but they couldn't believe the result they got and they wanted to cross fertilise it. So mm-hmm. I had to drive north another thousand kilometres or miles and, and pick up, because it was miles then too. Yeah. Pick up another sample while it's still in season. Right. Uh, which I did and I sent that down and, and that made history. It now leads the world in ascorbic acid. Mm-hmm. 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 No, it's incredible. So that was the first time that analysis had been done. That's right. Right. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. 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 Real. I think Sydney University, when they heard the results, they uh, a couple of years later analysed it and cross confirmed that right. result. But it was Defence that found it in the right. first place. Yeah. Huh. That's, that's mm. fascinating. It originally had the name. Billy Goat Plum. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I, my, my uh, 
ex-platoon commander from Vietnam was a journalist in um, Darwin who wrote for the Dar- NT News. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he said, oh, that Billy Gate Plum, that's a terrible name for such a good thing. Why don't we call it the Kakadu Plum? So we did, we called it the Kakadu Plum. <laughs> and that's how it came about. That's how it came so out. that was Sergeant Frank Alcorta. Right. Yeah. He was speechwriter for uh, Paul Everingham. Right, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who was... Uh, chief minister up there right mm-hmm. right right so that was his involvement yeah, there. yeah this, this is fascinating um and how did you do you remember how you were first uh, acquainted with the billy goat plum or the kakadu plum yeah, yeah. Uh, well vaguely i've got photographs yeah. of it yeah you know and uh, um it was around beswick there just south of catherine mm-hmm. that uh, i first was shown that mm-hmm. and then further further north in kakadu as well because it extends right up into Kakadu, right? You know? mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. In terms of the the work that you did, and you know, both that initial year and, and going on, were there any particular approaches? You, you sound like you were quite systematic. You know, you were collecting, you were putting them in eskies, you were yep. taking, them, you were sending. Were there any approaches that you found that worked particularly well? That, that you thought, right, this this is a really efficient way. When clearly driving back a thousand miles to get another sample isn't particularly efficient. But no, no. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. otherwise were, there, were there kind of methodologies that you kind of came upon that, yeah, that allowed you to kind of leverage what you were doing and get more information? Oh, I, I, I just think working one area and another area in the same season, right? That that helps compile the, your database yeah. quite well and your knowledge base, you know? Yeah. So I'd, I'd do a field trip four or five times a year mm-hmm. and I would be away for eight or nine months a year. In total, yeah. 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 So those around field... about eight months yeah, a year. Yeah. yeah. So it was a, a lot of field work at the time. Mm-hmm. You know? mm. mm-hmm. <clears throat> and after a few years of that you get pretty tired. Yeah. 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 yeah a lot of travelling, a lot yeah. of sleeping in yeah. the bush. And... I I can't do that sort of driving anymore. No. You know? no. I used to drive a thousand kilometres a day easy. You know, right. Yeah. Yeah. On those, By myself. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. On those roads up in, yeah. the, in the north, sucking yeah. dust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, it's hard on the hard on the body back then with mm. those vehicles as well. Yeah. Yeah. So just while we're on that subject, so jumping around a little bit, but um, some of the some of the listener questions, both from Australia as well as elsewhere. Um, one guy in the states who's in the, the south of the states. I remember particularly his question about traveling in remote areas by vehicle mm. do, you, do you have any you know i mean clearly there's there's lots of things that can be written and whole books have been written on that subject but what we what would your main advice be in terms of if you're traveling in isolated areas particularly arid areas by mm. vehicle what, what oh look the first thing to do is make sure you've got your spare tire uh, all your your fuel topped up uh, and then your water topped up you mm-hmm. know uh, if your vehicle breaks down don't leave the vehicle, mm-hmm. right? Because I know I've been involved in quite a few searches from the air for people, uh, broken, uh, broken down vehicles. The first thing we always find is the vehicle. Right. Then we've got to go and start searching for the people who have left it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's where the problems start, you yeah. know? Yeah. And uh, they think they can walk from A to B, but really they can't, mm-hmm. you know? And they half the time they don't have enough water to do it and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So they're better off staying with the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I used to run a uh, search and rescue, a SAR watch. I'd, I'd phone up home and say, look, I'm leaving here. I'm going to be in such and such. If I'm not there in a week, you better call the police. Right. You know, you know. <coughs> but I'd get the other end, make a fa- another phone call and cancel that SAR. You know? Yeah. Mm. yeah. So you, you'd do that as a matter of course yeah. on all of those trips, yeah. Because in those days, I didn't have a radio. No. Right? It was only 
some years later that I managed to get a radio, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and that's what I say. They they wouldn't let you do it these days. No, you know, the army wouldn't. You know, mm-hmm. you were literally out there on your own. Yeah, and, no yeah, radio, no radio, by yeah. myself. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> The way it should be. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, I think there's a there's a freedom in that, isn't there? That, yeah. That's hard to come by these days. Yeah. 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 In in terms of um, mistakes, mm-hmm. were there mistakes that you made on those trips that you learned from? Were there things? Were there close calls? Were there things that, uh, in retrospect, you learned from? Oh uh, yeah, overtaking vehicles in dust. Right. It, it's a real dangerous thing to be doing uh-huh. you know? and I learnt that a couple of times you know uh, don't do it right you know? mm-hmm. because you can't see what's coming ahead mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I've had some very close near misses doing yeah. that sort of thing right um, and and it was uh, purely trying to get away from a vehicle that was kicking up a lot of dust and going very slowly right know? and uh, getting past it yeah, yeah and and the dust comes into you uh, horrible mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so uh, yeah yeah, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Be more patient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Otherwise, were there, were there other big learning points? Do you always feel, did you always feel at home in the bush? I guess you've been in yeah. jungles of Southeast Asia in, in more well, even, pressing you know, circumstances. I grew up in Cairns when yeah, I was a kid, so yeah. uh, uh, we're always poking around in the bush or yeah. in the ocean or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. We're outdoory type bloody youngsters in yes. those days. Yeah. There was nothing indoors for you. No. You know? And uh, so you're always poking around outdoors, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you, you you didn't feel like there was once you started making those journeys, there wasn't like some horrible learning curve that you felt no, like it was a natural no, progression no. in terms of no. your bush skills. I yeah. always had plenty of water. Yeah. Um, oh, the other thing that I learned was useless was um, they always show vehicles with a canvas water bag hanging off the front bull bar, you know, to cool it down. To cool it down. Yeah. But it also evaporates it. Right. And in central Australia, within half an hour, you got nothing in your water bag. You know? <laughs> so it's useless. You know? Yeah. And it was only a few, uh, once I started sending samples to the Armed Forces Food Science Laboratory in Scottsdale, that's when they, they bought me a, a little portable fridge. Right. A little angle, mm-hmm. which was, um, that was terrific. The army wouldn't buy me one. <laughs> no, no, you don't need that. You know? <laughs> uh, so I used to put my water in there, you know. Right, mm, okay. Mm, yeah, 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 that makes sense. And the, yeah. the canvas water bag, don't waste your money. No, yeah. it doesn't work as well. Mm. No, no. Um, and some of those spots, again, on the on the shows where you, some of the, um, I think, was it Emu Springs or Emu? Yeah. Yeah. Some of those places look absolutely beautiful in terms of crystal clear water and mm. And some wonderful water sources when you could find them in those yeah. places. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Emu Springs is still there, right? But it's totally remodified. I think there's an outstation there, and there's oh, really? rubbish there now. Right. And, oh, um, what a shame. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. it's a bit of a sad story now. Mm. I saw it a couple of years ago, and I was flat out recognising it. You know. Mm-hmm. 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 And uh, the other one that I always remember as well is 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 the she oaks where you're digging down to get the the water oh the, the freshwater runoff yeah yeah, 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 yeah from the yeah, she oaks back yeah, there yeah yeah and the water table yeah that was uh north of number one i think right on the gulf side of the on the gulf side of arnhem land that is, right you know, mm. yeah and yeah. is that something that you you would you know regularly use or is that no no, yeah. no i always got ordinary water from the tap mainly right into the jerry cans and things and like just that. took enough with you yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah t- mm-hmm. took enough with me. Right. And uh, that's only if you really have to have backup water, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, in terms of your 
development as an outdoorsman and you had an outdoorsy childhood you clearly had your military training is there anybody that you can think of that was particular sort of influence on you either in terms of stuff you read or people you learned from directly that helped you develop as a as a bushman as an outdoorsman i can't think of anything in particular uh i used to watch the odd doco by people like harry butler and um um even the Leyland brothers I remember watching them in the early days right um and and uh, but not being particularly enamoured of them, but um, uh, Harry Butler was pretty good, mm. you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But no, I can't think of anyone that I thought, oh, I'd really like to be him, you know. Right. Sort of, you know, yeah. yeah. I didn't, didn't ever felt that. No. Mm. And, and and no one in particular that maybe that sort of influenced you in terms of your approach to the outdoors, like more directly. Uh, look, I think I was always taken by some of the explorers. That yeah, up, you know, uh-huh. people like Edmund Kennedy that went up Cape York. I was always fascinated mm-hmm. by him. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on in years to come, I actually found the spot where he was speared, right, you know, uh, where he died mm-hmm. up in Cape York. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I remember as a kid thinking, oh, that'd be a great thing to do. You know, not the spearing bit. No. But, yeah. <laughs> But the exploration, yeah, yeah, know, yeah, 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 that sort of spurred me on, right? You know, yeah. so it was that it was that curiosity and that exploration, yeah, yeah, and that, yeah. yeah that really drove and, you. Yeah, and don't forget, half the time I'm going to places that I would never likely to ever go in my life, you know, mm. and uh, be it in the middle of Arnhem Land at, you know, Emu Springs or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I did it at a time when it was best, you know, and a lot of these roads and things have all changed now, and it doesn't have the same sense of frontier to it mm. that it had back then, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in terms of where you chose to go, then mm. how did you decide? I'm going to go to Arnhem Land. I'm going to go oh, to Kimberley. I'm going to. And, and I'd, I'd, I'd look at where the communities were, right? And uh, I'd do my research on what anthropological work has been done there in the past, mm-hmm. and see that they've listed some of the bush tuckers for that location. Mm-hmm. And for instance, if you go to the northern end of um, Arnhem Land there, they've got a thing called a file snake, right? right. Which I can't get somewhere else, you know. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll go and we'll record that one, you know. Right. That sort of thing. Yeah. Know? And, and where, were you going to the library for that information, for those ethnographic yeah, works yeah, and yeah, anthropological works, yeah, right? Yeah, material culture and that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, it's not hard to find out. I've got half their books in here. Right. Who the uh, uh, the anthropologists were that worked in those areas in early times, mm-hmm. the Horn Expedition for Centre that's in there, and that deals with, uh, covers all that sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you go to the various bloody uh, uh, anthropologists. Yeah, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. So you were sort of building on that uh, yeah. academic work that yeah. had been done yeah. in that way. I'd yeah. bounce off that. Yeah, 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 yeah. it makes sense. And yeah. that 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 would steer me in the right direction. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. 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 Did you find any? Um, discrepancies there where they'd not recorded things correctly or not that i can think mm. of um the only time i had something like that there's a fellow called alan crib put out a book he was a botanist at queensland mm. university mm. called wild food in australia mm. i've got a copy back there at the moment and i had his book and i recognized one of the species that he was talking about you know he said you can and i i had a, a half a dozen of them one night and it gave me the biggest bellyache. They're called devil's guts, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> Scythophiliformis and devil's guts. Anyway, I got the electric telephone in Weeper and I rang up Alan Cribb and I said, hey, that devil's guts, you know, that you said, you know, you could eat it. Oh, I got a big guts ache out of that. Mm. He said, where'd you read that? And I said, in your book. He said, yeah, what version? I said, 1970. 
or whatever it was. Mm. He said, oh, you should have got the 72 version. I said it was poisonous and that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, well, that's yeah. the other problem with books, isn't it? Yeah, the, you yeah, know, right. talking, going back to your website, it's yeah. like you, you can change things yeah. and it's current rather yeah. than old versions floating around. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's fascinating that how, how some of those things kind of perpetuate as well. I mean, one of the things I've seen in, in sort of bushcraft and wild foods a little bit in, in Europe and maybe a little bit in North America as well, but particularly Europe, is that you'll get old ethnographic accounts of, you know, people making teas from various, I don't know, Asteraceae species, for example. Mm. And now we know they're full of... Uh, pyrolizidine alkaloids that damage your liver but back in the day mm. because it didn't poison you immediately yeah must you be okay must be okay mm. and but then people go and find those old texts and they're like oh well you know these you know yeah. these these people were making tea out of this or they were using the root for starch or what have you and then they think like they're rediscovering some old knowledge was yeah. in fact yeah. we've moved on yeah. from that sure. yeah. yeah yeah so it's, it's, it's fascinating yeah. if you could go back in time mm. to maybe when you were 30 mm. years old, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self, knowing what you know now and the experiences that you've had? Oh, dear. <clears throat> Take things a bit slower. Right. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And don't shoot from the hip so much. Right. Mm. Okay. Yeah. What makes you say that? Oh, just, you think back and you think, ah, oh, that wasn't a very smart thing to say. Right. You know, um, oh, that wasn't a real smart idea doing that you know whatever uh -huh. it was you know yeah mm -hmm. so be a bit more considered yeah yeah right. mm -hmm. uh -huh. Uh -huh. speaking of shooting from the hip yeah <laughs> as, you, as you do um with your 44 magnum well question from one of the, from one of the americans who uh who who you know i said you know i set out to mm. listeners in any questions for les he 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 sent other questions as well but one was what was the big revolver that you used to carry around with the you? smith and wesson eight inch 44 magnum right yeah and the follow-on question was, why did you carry it and did you ever need to use it for that purpose? Um, no, I got put up a tree once by a pig and all the piglets, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't up a tree, it was a, a tree that had fallen down. I was up on the top of it and the piglet was <laughs> around the bottom there, right. you know. Uh -huh. And uh, I stayed up there. I never used it, though. Uh -huh. um, so it wasn't for crocs then, it was for... It was for pigs, crocs, yeah. uh, you know, anything that's going to give me a hard time. That you need to stop quickly, mm. yeah, at mm. close range. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, well, you know, it was good for 100 metres. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. I remember shooting a dingo once at 100 metres with that revolver. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. yeah. And uh, it's now in the museum, I think, in... in uh, Canberra. Canberra, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got a few things there, I've heard. Uh, your, yeah. Your camera and... Yeah, got my camera and boots and uh, backpack. Uh-huh. And then they wanted to put me in there. Said, no. <laughs> not yet, no. not yet. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're all in the, yeah. uh, the museum. And the original hat, is that there? Yeah, or? that's in there okay. too. Yeah. Okay, Because yeah. I've had quite a lot of questions about the hat. I guess you've bored with questions about the hat. Oh, but well. I remember you telling me a story about it last time I met you, but that was a long time ago, and I don't remember the details. And people are always interested in your, mm. in your kind it's of... It's an Akubra sombrero. Yeah. And uh, the bashing is what they call a Kimberley bash. Mm. Um, and the, the hat band is not what you get with when you buy the hat. Yeah, that's a boot lace, right? Mm -hmm. a leather boot lace. Because uh, with survival, you should have backup systems for backup systems. Mm -hmm. And the boot lace is there in case you ever need to tie anything. Right. You know? Yeah. And you need a bit of string, but mm -hmm. you haven't got any. 
Mm-hmm. It really is around your head. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's good. So how did you settle on that style of a Kubra over any others? Because it's unusual. Yeah, normally you get it and it's got a bulge just like Hoss Cartwright's hat. Yeah. Out of Bonanza. And uh, I settled on that bash because I wanted a very distinctive bash mm-hmm. that the Aboriginal people could see me from 100 metres away and know who I was, mm-hmm. right? And uh, by doing that, that's exactly what happened. Okay. You know, and I didn't want to emulate the uh, the American type of rolled-up sides, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And this bash, I remember when I was a kid, was quite popular amongst the ringers and things around the Gulf Carpentaria. Right. You know, so okay. I thought, that's an Australian bash, that'll do me. Going to go for that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, no one uses it these days, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's only one person in Australia with that bash. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, there might be some others now. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. But it's kind of became a bit of a trademark, didn't yeah. it? Which, yeah. which, which worked in your favour, I think. Oh, totally. In lots totally. of ways. Yeah yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's a signature. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you still use it. I mean, there's one on the table here as yeah. we speak. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, they're good hats. They're good hats. So speaking of giving advice to younger people, if, if, if there's a young person now, and there are lots of young people who are interested, you know, we kind of denigrate the, the younger generation a little bit as a sort of video game playing mm. generation, but there are plenty of people around the world of the younger generation yeah. who are interested in nature. I saw some photographs on your website of younger people. Yeah, mm. absolutely, mm. absolutely, and they are interested. Some of them come with their parents, but there's a lot of, lot of younger ones, and I guess things like YouTube in particular giving yeah. people access to and an inspiration in a way that maybe TV yeah. used to. In terms of giving advice to young people that might want to learn more about bush tucker in particular, but also just learning about how to to look after themselves outdoors, would you have any key advice for young people? Oh, look, I think there's, you know, join the Army Reserve, Mm. you know. Um, You'll learn a lot that way. You'll learn how to navigate. You'll learn how to do this, uh, how to um, exist in the the, uh, outdoors Mm -hmm. comfortably without roughing it too much you know yeah. you'll learn a lot yeah. yeah join the army reserve mm-hmm. that's good advice and bit of discipline as well exactly yeah. 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 yeah 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 and you'll learn how to clean your boots yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i noticed that was something you did. i can't remember which episode it was it might have been that wet one again where you were cleaning your boots at the end of the episode so yeah. you can't yeah but it's interesting you said that every day you know hot shower every day because again that's yep. something that people do neglect outdoors they kind of their personal hygiene goes downhill yep. pretty quickly it's know? very easy to become a grub in the bush mm. you know mm-hmm. it's 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 hard to uh, keep your standards up there yeah but that's yeah. a discipline it is yeah yeah and i guess in those more humid climates more important as well uh yeah 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 in terms yeah. of getting sores and well insect bites and yeah. things yeah. that turn into um ulcers sores and things and, like yeah, that yeah. ulcers Tropical and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah so yeah. it is important yeah, yeah. um <laughs> one question from a from a listener so we sort of more generally following on from the from the from the young people if you could teach if you could teach the youth of today one thing what would it be <laughs> that was a, that was a listener question self-discipline self-discipline yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. no it's, it's again it's important you clearly had it you know that's systematic you know you would yeah you know mm. at the end of the day you did the work didn't you and you did lots of it to get yeah. to get that information well, you, you yeah. had to yeah. you know and uh, I remember for the first year or two I was doing all this field work and everyone back in base thought I was on a fishing trip, you know. <laughs> I didn't even have a fishing line, you know. 
And they use, how's the fishing trip? And I yeah. go, so sick of it, I actually bought a fishing line. <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just to satisfy. Well, them. I thought, well, I better catch some fish, and that way I'll photograph them, and they'll become bush tucker too. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, that was one of the things I noticed. I mean, again, I guess a lot of people think about plant foods when they think about you, but you did an awful lot of other features yeah. in your shows about collecting you know freshwater mussels or shellfish and all that sort of thing yeah. bark and the sapping yeah. in and ca- catching the fish in the billabong with yeah. the aboriginal guy yeah. there's a lot of other stuff in there that isn't about yeah. plants yeah. 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 yeah yeah and that's what i think it had just been plants that would have got boring mm. you know yeah and i think we we stretched the uh, the knowledge base over several different topics mm. and and that's what made it worthwhile you know and 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 by the way, I'll I'll talk to you about this plant now. But before I do, I want to show you this little thing over here because a, one of our explorers was killed here. Mm, you know. Yes. And uh, then I'll come back to the plant. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that you sort of interwove <coughs> all those different yeah. things. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and it wasn't dry and just no, no. about one, and, one damage. And another yeah. little trick we used to employ at times too is I'd pick something up off the ground and I'd show it to you on the camera and I'd say. I'll tell you what that's all about later on. Right. Put it in my pocket and then halfway towards the end of the show, I pull it out and show you. Yeah. Tell you, it's a clothes peg, you know, right. on your washing line yeah. out in the bush. So build know. build their curiosity yeah. in, in what yeah. you're doing. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. they were sort of little tricks that um, producers employed and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And having a shave in the morning and the, the mirror in the side of the car and the camera you're talking to the camera through the mirror right you know all that sort of thing and did those shots kind of come about quite naturally yeah yeah, yeah. so you were working with good creative people yes and, yeah. yes yeah. yeah cameramen uh you know sometimes i'd come up with ideas sometimes mm-hmm. they'd come up, and particularly after i've been doing it a while I, I was sort of quite capable of half directing the, the shoot myself yeah. you know because uh, you, you'd seen the end result of the previous shoots and that fed back well into, i knew what, yeah. we, what we we're looking for yeah. uh, in the editing room and that sort of thing yes. you know yeah and uh, no it's it sort of and that was a lot of fun too yeah. you know mm. so you enjoyed that creative side of it yeah, as well. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it yeah. wasn't just me waiting for waiting for uh, uh, the producer to tell me what to do mm. you know I'd, I'd been thinking about it before we even got to the location right you know um Oh, I know what this location's like. Now we could do a, a shot coming down there in the vehicle and then stopping at the creek at the bottom. I'll open the door, get my pannikin out, and dip it in and get a cup full of water and out of the creek, be running under the car, mm-hmm. right? And then I'll talk to you about this creek and what... And there was an American aircraft crashed up here during World War Two. It's called the Robinson River and it's called the Moonlight Creek Crash. Mm. Right? So, but it's all, I thought about the whole sequence of dipping the thing in the water, mm-hmm. pulling up the, and then talking to the camera right. beside me. Yeah, you know? so you kind of storyboarded it all in your yeah, head yeah, to start yeah, off with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And they were happy to, to work with you. Oh, yeah. With that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Well, it adds flavour to the whole thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Because mm. yeah. yeah. some, you know, I, I haven't done much to do with TV, but some people are very kind of flexible and open and other people are quite... No, we want to do it this way. Mm, yeah, so mm. it's, it, it sounds like a really good collaborative. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Experience. Yeah. And the cameraman, they're doing the same things, you know. Yeah. And uh, they'd be talking about camera shots and angles and all that sort mm-hmm. of thing themselves, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, in terms of giving people advice and people learning, if you wanted to learn about plants in a particular area, maybe where close to where people live or where they go camping. Do you have any approaches there that 
would benefit them. You know, say you had to go somewhere where you'd never been before. You know, it might be you know, I don't know, Sweden or I don't know somewhere that you maybe don't know so much about the plants as you do here in Australia. How would you go about learning what you could? There? I think you start off with doing academic research. I think mm-hmm. because all those sort of places would have a stack of academic bloody uh, um, research on those sort of things. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Whereas Australia, we we didn't really have that much. Yes. You know, yeah. Because we're a new country. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I was looking the other day at you know Lofty Wiseman. Mm-hmm. I've got his book in there that he gave me, mm-hmm. and I was looking at some of the colour photographs he's got in there, and it's it's wild strawberry, it's wild raspberry, it's what, and they're all related to the one you're buying in the shop. You know, you can see the relationship. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. So I guess that's the same in a lot of these cold climate places. It, it is, yeah. I mean, there are some relationships that are, you know, you you know. Some of the prunus species, like in the cherries, they yeah. might not be the cultivated cherries. Well, that's in but, there too. Yeah, yeah, so that, yeah. But there are other ones that you'll find in the bush, and it's not too difficult to know that they're in that yeah. same genus because yeah. they, they share those familiar characteristics. The difficulty with some of them, though, is that some of the cultivated species are lower in cyanide, for example, than some of the wild species, yeah. and yeah. it's knowing that. So I think maybe one of the, the dangers with some of the Western European and North American cultivated species have either had some of the toxicity cultivated out of them yeah. or that they've chosen a particular species which does grow wild but then that's the only one that people yeah. know and then yeah. there's others yeah. that are not toxic. so good yeah. 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 yeah yeah but you can see the physical relationship absolutely you know? mm. yeah mm. yeah so mm. you're starting from a position of more familiarity yeah than, very yeah. much so yeah see we know that like he had crab apple in there and things like that the other day when he, i've got his book just in that yeah. other office there and uh Quite a lot of the stuff that he's got photographs of, like, oh, yeah, I can identify that, you know, it's just yes. like the real thing, you yeah. know, to look at anyway, you know. Absolutely, mm. yeah, yeah. And of course, even here, most of the foods that you eat, you get from the supermarket, you buy in the stores, are it's those a, similar yeah, species. Same, that, same thing, yeah. You know, courgettes or <coughs> capsicums or, you know. All of that, yeah. yeah. Exactly well, the same as we'd get in the supermarket in the UK. Well, yeah. Whereas our bush tucker... It's completely different. Yeah, you don't see any of it in the shops. No, no. Mm. no. Macadamia nuts and that's it. That's it. <laughs> and, and you won't find them here either. No. <laughs> They're all exported yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There does seem to be some in- increased interest in indigenous yeah that's particularly of late isn't it Mm. yeah yeah Mm. i don't know what's spurring that on no because i remember when i when i first met you back in 2009 there were your bush tucker guides you know a few bush tucker books you know or books of yours that had bush tucker in and there weren't many other easily accessible or easily obtainable wild food books but i've certainly noticed i spend more time down in in victoria than than i do up here but i remember when i first went down there it was a case of going maybe to Melbourne Museum and looking at some of the indigenous stuff there and they've got a garden out the back that's all Aboriginal use plants or going to the botanical gardens and looking at some of the native species there where they've got information about how they were used locally but it was hard to find any books and now there's there seem to be more books available but also more books aimed at the the sort of uh, mainstream audience perhaps um, in terms of recipes and wild yeah, yeah. foods and and that that's something that we've seen in europe quite a lot you know in the last 20 years has been a real upsurge in in wild foods and foraging and people oh, yeah. going in yeah. what not, do you reckon that is um 
some of it's to do with people on television promoting it and you know there was a guy called Hugh Ferling Whittingstall who um, he did a kind of escape to the country type thing where he went to live in a cottage and he had a sort of small holding but he also was foraging food and that seemed to spur a lot of people's interest oh, is it? it was yeah. called River Cottage yeah. Diaries yeah, we, or something originally yeah we got a River Cottage Australia too yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. well it's, it's moved into it's become like a big brand yeah. the river, but it was literally he made a TV series about moving out of London to this Dorset cottage he had his veggie patch he had some pigs and chickens and, yeah. and he was also going out into the woods and the fields and foraging yeah. stuff mm. and that that I think was one of the things but I think more generally there's people are maybe a little bit more suspicious of of industrialized agriculture in some ways and so they're thinking well you know mm. maybe all this stuff I'm getting in the supermarket if it's full of pesticides and mm. hormones or, or whatever mm the stuff there that's growing wild, maybe that's a little better for me. And then there's the nutritional value aspect, which is something that you mentioned in your mm. shows even back in the yeah. 80s and early 90s, that some of this stuff in the bush has got better nutritional density than yep. what you're buying in the, shop. buying in the mm. shops. Yep. And then I think the other thing is that it's the same reason, I think, why some people come on my courses just to learn about bushcraft skills in general, is that they feel disconnected from nature and they want to mm. maybe have a bit more of a connection. Mm with the environment that's around them and, yeah. and eating it is one way of doing that isn't yeah. it yeah <laughs> well learning how to prepare yeah. it and all yeah, that yeah. sort of thing yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. but do, do you see that as a good thing that people are more interested in this oh yeah yeah, yeah it's got to be yeah. you know people living in cities gazing at their navel it's not very healthy no you know no. and uh yeah I think anything that gets people out in the out in the field I find what's interesting at the moment, the people that are living in the middle of the city with all these fires going on, etc., in the big cities, suddenly are the experts on nature. <laughs> and they have least to do with it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do, you, do you think modern Australia is coming to a point where it realises it has to learn a bit more about traditional approaches to the environment here? The fire's been maybe one spur well, the of that? You know... In Northern Australia, the Aboriginals burnt off the countryside every year, mm -hmm. right? They didn't do it to control fire, I'm sure. They did it because the minute they did, all the animals would be flushed out, and right. that was food, right? right? And uh, it also happened to stop the bushfires, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I know the hills behind me in Townsville there, where, where you you visited me in Townsville. Yes, there. yeah, yeah. And those hills there, yeah. they burn off every two years, right? you know? And... No fire engines or anything, it just burns off, falls down, that's it, mm -hmm. you know. Two years' time, same thing again, you right. know. And it's the same across northern Australia. I've flown across at almost treetop level across the Kimberleys and I'll be 100 kilometres from any other living person. I look down and there's a wisp of smoke coming up from nowhere, hmm. you know. Daylight, big blue sky, no thunder. Hmm. What's going on, you know. It's just nature doing its thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and the Kimberley and everywhere, it burns off all the time, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so a couple more um, listener questions. Um, now, I remember you on the uh, one of the first series um, talking about Syzygium. Syzygium, is that the yeah. right pronunciation? And they were the little kind of white fruits. Yeah. One of the questions from the, the listeners is, and he's based in Darwin, I believe, are they all, are there multiple different species? And are they all... Sorry? The, the Syzygium, is there just one species or are there multiple species? No, multiple. Multiple, and are they all edible? 
they seem to be, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Common name, lily pilly. Lily pilly, uh, yeah. That's one of them. Uh, we've got Sizigiums here in the rainforest, the mm-hmm. lily pillies, they're mm-hmm. edible. Uh, over in Darwin, you've got uh, Lady Apple, which is a Sizigium. Mm-hmm. They used to be called Eugenia. Right. And then they converted across the... But all the Sizigiums I've encountered have been edible. Right. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that was his, his main question. Um, the other question he, he had was, do you still do work with veterans? Do you still do that? Uh, we, I established that veteran retreat up yes. there in uh, uh, Lakeville, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, they still go there, but the numbers are dwindling. Right. Um, and and uh, I think they're getting too old. Right. Um, that's one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Another one I won't mention. Right. Uh, and the third one is it's not cheap to be able to drive there. Right. So in their dotage, they cannot afford it the way they used mm-hmm. to. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Just a couple of other kit questions. People are always interested in kit. Um, someone was asking about your, or a few people were asking about your swag. Was it just something you put together yourself? Was yeah. it one that you bought off the shelf? Or? No. Uh, I had the canvas manufactured while I was in the army. Mm-hmm. And I just put a couple of sheets and a blanket in there right. and rolled it all up with a couple of straps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So any any do's or don'ts with swag send things that you would Roll recommend? your swag up every day, otherwise the creatures crawl in there too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, we talked about the revolver, we talked about your, your hat. The other question again was about, you seem to use a particular fixed bladed knife at times and some people are wondering, again, it's, you know, uh, a, fascin- a fascination yeah. the time I can remember you using a knife on something I watched recently was that ABC piece from last year when you were taking yeah. um, some uh, resin off a, yeah. off a tree for, That's a, yeah. that knife is a puma puma I thought it was a puma yeah, yeah. yeah. puma yeah. white hunter okay mm. yeah. yeah and uh, uh, I, I used to have a, a bowie uh, but I learnt that you shouldn't open oysters with the tip of the puma bowie it break off or did it you breaks off right. yeah. okay <laughs> so something a little bit more robust yeah. at the front right yeah. right right okay makes sense um what was your favorite bush tucker man to do either just the the subject matter or the location do you have a particular what, favorite what episode yeah did you have one that you particularly oh. stood out as i really I, enjoyed yeah, i that think one? the wet season one at port keats what do i with the thunder and the lightning and all that sort of thing yeah that was something special, you yeah. know. Yeah, that, um, that footage was yeah, special. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, But mind you, there's a lot of them that stand out. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. We talked about the Land Rovers. People are asking about that. Would you still use a trailer now if you were yeah. doing Genesis? Yeah. yeah. If I was doing it again, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I've been using a trailer all my life, mm-hmm. you know. And don't forget, as I've mentioned, it's backup wheels for your car, yes. for your yeah. vehicle. Yeah. And... Uh, <clears throat> Here we go again. <laughs> I've got a, uh, these days, uh, I'm not using the swag anymore, and we've just now recently purchased a small caravan. Right. It's called a Kedron uh, Compact. Right. And it's 16 foot, uh, and and uh, it contains a shower and toilet and all those sort of things that I don't have to worry about creating anymore. Yes. You know? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. You've, you've set those things up enough. 
Oh, enough. Yeah. <laughs> makes sense. And at the end of a day's drive, it's the last thing I feel like doing these yeah, days. Yeah. You know? mm, no, that yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. So is that a is that a, is that a trailer caravan or is it one that? No trailer, trailer caravan. Trailer caravan. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. It's just up behind your car. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I noticed it when I came yeah. in, but for yeah. the benefits of oh, the yeah. listeners, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, looking back over all the bush tucker that you you tried, um, what what were your limits? Was anything that you thought? No, that's just disgusting, or that I wouldn't eat that unless I really had to. Oh, there's one particular one I, I'll try and dodge it. It's um, Marinda Citrifolia, the great Marinda. Uh-huh. Uh, I call it the dog's vomit fruit. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible. You know, it's like eating rancid blue vein cheese that's been off. You know, are those the sort of white, yeah. translucent yeah. skin fruits? Yeah. Where yeah. did you see them? In your book, I'd oh, imagine. Yeah yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen them in, in real life. but I, I don't know. Did they call it the dog's vomit tree? I in don't know. I remember the, the rancid cheese description. Yeah, is, yeah. Um, this got a little bit wet. Oh, Unfortunately, the pages. Not not recently. But, uh, yeah, I, I know how to spell it. It's just which... Because you've got it set, set into different sections, haven't you? Marinda citrifolia. Cheese fruit. Great Marinda, 36. There it is. Yeah, you've just got other names: cheese fruit. Oh, I but it, but yeah, it was the ran- the rancid cheese. Um, powerful aroma, similar to rancid cheese, was the description that stuck in my mind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's one you'd avoid if you can. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't care what you pay me on the weekend. Fair enough. Fair enough. Another question. Was in terms of the sort of more general bushcraft and camp setup and stuff, was Richard Graves stuff familiar to you? Was that something that you was an influence? His bushcraft book at all? No, I, I don't know. Okay, right, fair yeah. enough. That answers that question. Uh, who is he? He was an, he was an Australian. Nobody's really quite sure what his background was. He oh. he wrote ten pamphlets on different campcraft and oh, the kind of yeah. that type of thing, um, and put and it was put together into a book called Bushcraft, which. I think he's reprinted now, but for a while it was quite hard to get hold of. But, oh, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So one of, the, one of the listeners was wondering if that was mm. an influence at all. Um, clearly not. No. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, it's all right. It's just, um, and then people just wondering, do you still get out in the bush? Do you still go fishing? Yeah, all of, oh, yeah. All of the above. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think it's important for people to keep being active when they're older and very much yeah, so yeah. very much so yeah otherwise you curl up in the corner and die yeah you know yeah. and uh, uh like sandy was just telling you that we we went up and had a picnic up there etc and i was really cursing we took the other car around the corner you know that one yes the other one we got right mm-hmm. which didn't have the fishing rod in it right and and because uh, this this one here the four-wheel drive it's got two fishing rods inside, right? And reels and little kit, so that if we go, oh, let's have a fish while we're here. Yeah, you know. But the other one, we didn't have one because it's a sedan. Mm. Um, so I, when I came back the other day from that, I thought I've got to get a, a traveller fishing rod, a collapsible one. Mm. So I've got that down. It's in the boot. It's in the boot of the car, all so. ready to go. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all 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 eventualities covered there in terms yeah, of having a fish. Because we used to have. Up until 
I'll tell you this story uh, while I moved away from Land Rover. You know, mm. We had two Land Rovers here, mm. and both of them were under warranty, and I had them both break down while they were under warranty. Right. You know, mm. One of them, uh, uh, Discovery... Yeah, because the last time I met you, you were driving a Discovery yeah, 3, I think. Yeah, I've been driving right through yeah. until about six months ago. Right. You know, <clears throat> and one of them did a top radiator hose, and they didn't have a spare radiator hose in Australia, nor in England. Really? Yeah, and it's under warranty still, right? <laughs> they had to butcher another car to get me back on the road, you know. And then we went up to Lakefield, Lakefield National Park, um, to, to uh, do a track. I've got a flat tyre up there. Mm. Okay, with the discovery when you get a flat tyre, you know what you've got to do? Yeah, you've got to empty the boot. You've got to empty everything out on the... And it, do that silly winch thing. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. You get it down, you change your tyre, then you go to Cooktown. No, we don't have a tyre here, not that size. Mm. Oh, there's none in Cairns either, nor town. There's one in Brisbane, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Land Rover. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. you're not thinking through what you're supposed to be doing. You know, no. and they're going for a market that's not me anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah. So uh, that's why I bought the Toyota. Yeah, you know, and uh, the Toyota when you, oh, oh, that one's got a spare wheel on the back door, which is why I picked that one, mm-hmm. and then an extra big fuel tank underneath. Right, right. But if you want the spare wheel on that Toyota underneath, okay, you don't get the extra big fuel tank anymore. Mm. But you don't have to empty the back of the car to lower it down. No. Right? So someone over there, and I think it's his name's Jerry McGovern. Right. He's the designer at Land Rover. Mm. He's not thinking. That's why that fella over there, he's building a, a new factory to compete against Land Rover. Have you heard about him? No, I haven't. No. He, he's doing a, a car called the Grenadier. Right. <clears throat> and it's uh, he's disgusted with the way Land Rover have not kept to their ideals mm. uh, of a go anywhere, do anything vehicle. Uh, vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's got a he's the richest bloke in England, whatever his name is. Uh, he's right for Brexit. He wanted, oh, is it Dyson? Hmm? Is it the Dyson guy? No. The guy. What's Dyson? Dy- the the vacuum cleaners. No, no, no he's got guy. petrochemical plants all around the world. Okay. I'll find out. I've got it. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll do. I'd be interested. Yeah, yeah, we can stick a link to it or something. Yeah, because mm. a lot of a lot of a lot of people who are interested in what you do, like I say, you know, they have a love for that first vehicle that you drove around, and it was a great vehicle. Yeah, you know, and you know, I've I've still got a Defender um, that we use for the business. I've got an old Discovery Three, but I understand the I understand the issues with them. Um, the I wouldn't. I wouldn't buy a new one now. I no. wouldn't. I wouldn't. No. No. The Defender. I had a brand new Defender as well. Mm. <coughs> Still under warranty. Yeah. And we did Central Australia uh, on some research. Was it? Got out there uh, in the. Uh, and suddenly I got no clutch. Mm. Right. What the hell's going on? I ring up the bloke in uh, Townsville who sold it to me. Who's a Land Rover nut, by the way. Mm. He really loved. Oh, yeah, that tends to happen sometimes. Just let it sit for half an hour and cool down, right? And then you'll, your clutch will come back. It's a such and such so and so. They used to make it out of metal and it didn't have this problem, but now they're making it out of plastic and it's, they've got this problem type thing, you know? Right, right. And sure enough, what he said was correct. Half an hour later, I had a clutch back, <laughs> right? But then two hours later, it went again. Went again. You know, because yeah. it's getting hot. Yes. Because it can't withstand it because it's made of plastic now, you know, mm-hmm. whatever this component was, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when we did the trip in the, in the centre, you know, they leaked like a sieve dust-wise. Right, you know, yeah. And, and I'd, 
dust all over the dash inside and even though we got the air conditioner on trying to keep it out mm. and I'm coughing my heart out <laughs> uh, no. so we sold that and yeah. bought the other car around the corner yeah. and uh, for just tripping around and bought that thing there and that's why we moved but you might find that grenadier idea mm. uh, interesting mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. mm. well I've noticed here you know even in you know compared to previous trips there seem to be fewer and fewer people driving Land Rovers around in Australia they've know, taken their eye off the ball yeah you know and um, <clears throat> lots of lots of Toyotas some Nissans other things but yeah lots, yeah. lots of Toyotas now yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and you know they've made that that Jerry McGovern, he got. I used to do the ads for Land Rover mm, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't have this Jerry McGovern design of them, but he's making the roof all slopey down. And you yeah, know, it, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, anyway, I'll, as I say, uh, I, I didn't leave Land Rover, Land Rover left me, mm, you know. Yeah, mm, yeah. Mm. yeah, well, they've. They make their decisions, and that's yeah. that, isn't it? You, yeah, you, you yeah. make you make your decisions as a, yeah. you know, as a yeah. consequence of of, of all yeah. of that. I, I, I get that. Um, you have to cut all that out. <laughs> <laughs> cut, cut, cut out whatever you want me to cut out. But um, yeah, pe- people that like what you did on the shows, and just people who are interested in the outdoors in general. They seem to still have a love for the old Land Rovers, but they're again a lot of people are disgusted with like they just don't make any vehicles that are any use, yeah. you know, or, or they're just too complicated. They yeah. work when they work, but they're too complicated. The electronics go wrong. They you can't feel fix anything anymore. No. Um, no. Yeah, and and you know with this thing out the front here, I can go to any Aboriginal rubbish dump in any community and find spare parts. Yeah, you know, mm. <laughs> wheels, whatever yeah. you know. Yeah. Which used to be the case with Land Rovers, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, in, in Africa, and you know, there was there was always well, somebody who'd have a spare part or be able to weld it for you or what yeah. have you. Yeah, yeah. But they're all toy headed aren't they, yeah. in Africa? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So, denigrating comments about Land Rover notwithstanding, which we will <laughs> edit as, as necessary. I think that largely brings us to a close, okay. Les. I think, let's reiterate your website again is somewhere that people should check out yep. so reminders of the address for that all one Les? word bushtuckerman.com.au .au. people can find lots of information about species yeah, there um, what we've got there is a, a, a website where you can save all uh, and, and bear in mind that some of the species there actually do flow into Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. the, the uh, South Pacific and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and what we've got is a drop down menu there that says what sort of environment are you standing in is it a wetland or coastal area or tropical rainforest or arid zone or tropical woodland um, and you tick what invite and what month of the year is it mm-hmm. so you tick whatever months you want and then up comes all the relevant species for that environment for that time of year mm-hmm. and quite often what i've done in in uh, in relation to those species is i've added a verbal overlay mm-hmm. a voiceover uh, which you can do, obviously, with with websites, and uh, give you a bit more information about it apart from what I've written there. Mm-hmm. No, it's wonderful. It's a great resource, and thank yeah. you for putting that together. People can follow you on Instagram as well. Yeah, uh, we've got a pretty good Instagram account up and running now, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> uh, I forget the address of it. I think it's... Le- well, 
Bush Tucker mean Les Hiddens? I think it is, yeah. yeah. And we'll link to that on the on the show notes right. as well. People can find that if they go yeah. to the go to the page that is related to this episode in particular. All the links of anything that yeah. Les and I have talked about will be there. One of the things I particularly like about the uh, the Instagram is that you're sharing current photos, which it's great for, but you're also sharing archival photos as well, behind the scenes things, things that we've maybe never seen before. Well, camera crews and all that sort of yes. thing, doing their job and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know. and helicopters and yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all good yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's interesting these days, of course, um, half those helicopter shots we wouldn't use, we'd use drones. Drones, yeah. Know. yeah. They've taken the place almost, you know. Yeah. You still want a cameraman to be lifted up the top of a mountain. And, and photograph the car down below. Yes. But um, yeah, a lot of the time you'd use drones now. Yeah. Yeah. So the the cost of production in some ways has come down a lot for those. Well, of- yeah. You can do stuff on a, a couple of ordinary cameras mm. and put it together on the computer and be just as good quality wise as what we we're doing for a hundred thousand dollars. You probably do for twenty now. Yes. You know, yeah. twenty or thirty. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the editing is. Oh, it's 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 so much easier, particularly with Apple. You know, yes. I've moved from uh, I've moved from PC across to Apple, and uh, really enjoying that. Yeah, same here. I use Apple computers, editing podcasts, editing yeah. videos. Yeah, it just works really well. Yeah, yeah. 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 What do you use for your video editing? Um, I use Final Cut Pro. Yeah, Final Cut Pro. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Rather than just the standard iMovie that it comes sure. with. Yeah, get yeah. Final Cut Pro. Yeah, yeah. Um, a professional editor that I know. He he recommends Adobe Premiere, um, but I've I've learned Final Cut Pro and I'm happy with it. I can do the things I need to it's do. It's pretty for good. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Adobe Premiere they get a bit expensive too. Those right? they can do. I, I subscribe to some of the Adobe products. I use Adobe Audition for editing the podcast, which is is fantastic for that. But I I haven't got the time to learn another video editing no, s- suite. No. I, I, the one I've got does the things I need it to do and it works. I can do it quickly. So um, well. I'm, I'm saving up at the moment. I'm going to get a drone, you know. Right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So you're going to be doing more video, or is that just for personal fun? Oh, I'd like to do some drone shots to put in the uh, the website eventually. Okay. You know? Yeah. And uh, show some of the environments and that sort of mm-hmm. thing, you know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So have that kind of helicopter, literally that helicopter view of how yeah. things sit in the yeah. environment. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that'll be fascinating. So another reason to to keep following yeah. on, the, on the website. Yeah. And I, I've been I've been a paid subscriber of that website since sometime last year. I think middle of the year and it's it's really good yeah yeah, yeah. you're still learning stuff out of it absolutely yeah yeah, yeah 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 and I think as you it's not just static either I mean you're adding voiceovers and other bits and pieces yeah. and yeah. yeah it's useful and the fact that you can interrogate it if you're interested in particular things particular time of year particular habitats yep. that's really super useful mm. you know and I've got books of yours but I think it's nice to have that online resource you can download the PDFs sure. and things like that it's, yeah. it's an extra extra thing which yep. is and I think for some people as well, I mean, these are not easy to get hold of now. I mean, I'm, I'm pointing at one of yeah. Les's Bush Tucker field guides here I've got on the on the table. Um, they're not so easy to get hold of now either. So. No, they've been out of print for some years. And yeah. I believe they go for a pretty hefty price on the yeah. internet. You know? yeah. Mm. yeah, so I need to put mine behind lock and key then. Yeah. It <laughs> well, Les, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day, allowing me to come and visit with you and um, for me to ask you lots of uh, somewhat random questions <laughs> and delving into your past and you know you've had the good grace to answer them all and answer the listener questions and I really really appreciate it thank you okay you're welcome mate thank you cheers okay, yeah. cheers thank you 
Well, thanks again to Les for his time and sharing his stories, experiences and thoughts there and answering listener questions. And if you're wondering how people manage to ask those questions, I tend to put a request out for listener questions on my Facebook page. So if you're not following me on my Facebook page, then please do so there if you'd like to ask questions. All the links that we mentioned in this podcast are included in the show notes on the page dedicated to this particular podcast episode, which you can go straight to at paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 50. That's podcast five zero. And if you're not already subscribed to my email updates from my blog, then please join while on my site at paulkirtley.co.uk. There's a sign-up form on pretty much every single page of my site. And at the time of recording, I've still got those annoying pop-ups as well. And you can put your email in there. Um, <laughs> I know they're annoying, but they do work. You'll then be among the first to know um, not only about my podcast, but also videos and articles on my blog, as well as other less public online materials. In particular, I have some very relevant free live webinars coming up this year, and you have to be on my mailing list to know about them. So make sure you're subscribed for that reason alone. Thanks for listening. I look forward to bringing you the next podcast in this series before too long. Take care and enjoy the outdoors. Bye.